Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Emma Adjiman, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Mark Williams, Manager of Line Trust Asia Income Fund. Investing in Asia is typically associated with a potential for strong growth, but there are also a number of funds which focus on Asian income, such as Line Trust Asia Income. Mark, how do the levels of income you can get from Asian equities compare to those you can get from UK equities, which historically have been good at paying dividends? I think that the main difference between Asian equities when you're targeting them for income is that you can get a combination of both income and growth, which is what we're doing. So we're not targeting the highest yielding equities that are available. We're looking for ones with an intermediate yield, but decent earnings growth to capture the total returns of the region. And our fund is expected to yield about 4% net of withholding tax in the coming year, which we think aligns it fairly well with that that's available from the UK. But at the same time, you've got about an expected 10% earnings growth. And that's what we've had since we launched the fund about five years ago. I mean, that's actually a very attractive income profile. But has Asia always been a good source of equity income? It varies. And even within Asia, I think you have to be fairly selective. Some countries, such as Hong Kong, are improving and you can get decent yields, particularly from a lot of the mid caps. So again, between three and a half, four and a half percent is readily available with growth. Others, like Korea, has very low yield, but they're improving it dramatically at the moment. So the market only yields about 1.5%, but that's almost 50% better than it was a few years ago. And Taiwan's another one where we find great opportunity at about 4%, because they're not investing as much as they have been, because the world is a lower-growth environment. So I don't think you can look at it as one single entity, but you have to look for the opportunities as they become available. And overall the desire for companies to pay dividends to shareholders is improving. You know, you said it's a mixed bag, and you also said that the the fund seeks growth as well as income. So what I wondered was, with the, let's say, more income-focused shares that you invest in, do they also deliver good growth, or do you have to go to separate shares to get that element? It would be possible to do it the way you've described, but no, we target companies where they both pay dividends and also grow over time. And the reason we do that is because we think it directs you to companies where they might be more conservative, but they're better managed than the average company. They understand the cost of capital. They understand the need to reward minority shareholders. And they really do have what they say is there in that they have to have the cash to be able to pay it back for investors. And it's not the same as just looking at earnings numbers, which can be manipulated to some degree. So all of our holdings both pay out a dividend and we have expectations that they will grow those earnings over time. Stereotypically, income shares, certainly in the UK, are considered to be perhaps less volatile than high growth ones. Is this the case with Asian equity income shares? Our fund has a beta which is less than one. So yes, it is less volatile than the market. And Since it's been launched, it has outperformed the indices that we look at when we measure the market. So the Asia-Pacific X-Japan index is the main starting point. But I would say because we're targeting this growth, we're not trying to dampen down the volatility. There are some higher yielding, less volatile stocks, but they're not the ones that we think are attractive at the moment. So investors investing in our fund do accept exposure to the Asia-Pacific region, And our view is that that will give them better returns over the longer term, but we're not particularly trying to reduce the volatility. 
Picking up again on the point you said about it being, let's say, quite a, a mixed bag in terms of opportunities, are there any countries or sectors in Asia that are particularly fruitful sources of income? Yes, for us at the moment, there are three things we're looking for. So I've mentioned the dividends, a decent but intermediate dividend. I've mentioned the growth, but also we look for stocks that seem attractive on another valuation metric, so forward earnings with that growth borne in mind. And we find particularly in Taiwan and the Hong Kong-listed Chinese companies great opportunity at the moment. Those are the ones where we've got significant exposure. So Hong Kong-listed Chinese companies are approximately 40% of the portfolio. There's about 15% of the portfolio in Taiwan. We're also finding increasing opportunities in South Korea, which I mentioned before. Some of the financials there are going to benefit from rising interest rates. Petrochemicals companies there look cheap on any regional basis. So those would be the three main areas. And then some of the others, such as the Philippines and India, potentially we think are too expensive at the moment. Now, what's your investment process for selecting a share for the fund? Our process is that our starting point is we look at what we think will drive equities for the next six to 12 months. And we put together a framework which will be impacted by these drivers. An example of that would be one that I don't think many people would disagree with, but we think there'll be an ongoing increase in data consumption globally. And we see that around us. And it's definitely having an impact in Asia. This then opens up a huge potential number of companies that are going to benefit from this positive tailwind. So it could be the people who host the servers where this data will be stored. It could be the people who manufacture the components which go into manufacturing the, the servers. Equally, the mobiles that will transmit a lot of the data, the mobile operators themselves, or even the people who rent out towers or infrastructure to these mobile companies. And that means that we've got a broad area both across different sectors and countries that we can look at. But ultimately, all we're doing is using that as a very efficient way of using our time to try and identify companies where they have the combination I keep on coming back to, which is they pay out a decent yield, but they have a long-term earnings growth expectation, and also they're cheap on some other valuation. And assuming that we can find companies like this, because... The three of us who are in the team managing the fund are all looking within the same framework and analysing companies on a fundamental basis in the same way. We can then compare like for like and create a portfolio. On the subject of like for like, Asia includes both emerging markets and developed economies. To my mind, they're not like for like. So are there any differences in the way you assess companies in each of these? For me, that's one of the big bugbears I have is that People break down the region into whether they're developed or emerging economies. And I I think it's more driven by the way that indices are divided rather than any real logic. So I see no point in looking at companies which are listed in Hong Kong or Singapore in a very different light from those which are Chinese companies potentially listed in Hong Kong or the likes of Taiwan or Korea. And so... For me, when you're analysing the companies, again, you go back to the drivers and whether it's a Singapore-listed entity or a Hong Kong-listed entity or a Taiwanese one, you can compare like for like in terms of the positives that are coming into it and are trying to avoid the negatives and then looking at valuations. On top of that, there is always a risk. And I think it's interesting. People are always sceptical about the corporate governance in Asia and I do acknowledge that there are significant weaknesses And a lot of that would come into the whether or not they're developed economies. But at the same time, if you look at many of the recent failures, 
whether it be Enron or Bernie Madoff or even Tesco, they tend not to have been Asian related. So I'm not avoiding the fact that we have to be wary of these things and that if you're in a developed economy or so-called developed economy, maybe there's slightly better regulation. But I see our job and one of the main things of our job is trying to avoid these issues. And I've entered and analyze each company individually to see whether there are issues which should make them trade at a discount. Bearing that in mind, then, do you think the companies you consider in emerging markets are riskier than those in developed countries? Uh, Individually, some of them much so. And particularly, Mm -hmm. say, in China, a lot of the companies are state-owned enterprises. They are owned by the state. And they won't necessarily have the shareholder as the top of their list of priorities. And you have to be very wary of that. It doesn't mean that it can't be priced in. It doesn't mean that they're uninvestable. And we do own two of the Chinese banks, which are owned by the state. But which I, banks are those? Bank of China and ICBC. Okay. And I, I think it, it means that you have to look at these things and, and bear in mind with the valuations, the implications. And equally, companies in Korea, and I keep on mentioning Korea because we've increased our exposure there. We've now got 10% of the portfolio there, which is about five times as large as it was at the beginning of last year. But within there, corporate governance has been terrible. And that's one of the reasons why it is the cheapest market within our remit is because it's had poor corporate governance. But I see that as a great opportunity at a time like you have at the moment where that corporate governance is improving and it's being improving because the government is driving it. So the answer in brief is yes, there are issues, but those can provide you with as much opportunity as it does risk. What will be, um, let's say, examples of shares you've recently added to the fund? So an example would be LG Chemical, which we bought last year. The starting point for that, going back to my drivers, was that we saw there had been a lack of investment in petrochemicals globally. And equally, we saw that there had been growth since the financial crisis globally, which had used up some of the overcapacity. And the reason we liked LG Chemical is because looking at the 12 months performance prior to us buying it, it had given a negative 10% return, whereas the best performing petrochemicals had gone up 100%. So it was a laggard. And there was a reason for that, because it is a battery manufacturer, and it had a loss making battery division. But it's one of the better battery manufacturers in the world. And each quarter, these losses were becoming less. So we saw what the markets seemed to take as a negative to be a significant positive. And so we bought that towards the middle of last year. And since then, the battery division has become profit-making and the stock went up about 50%. OK. And what will be an example of a share you recently sold? The most recent sell that we've had is a company called RHT, which is a Singapore-listed company, but it's Indian Exposure. And they manage the facilities which um, are used by hospital groups in India. And the reason we sold it is because there was a takeover that was announced and that meant that there was going to be a limit to growth. And also then there became some questions as to whether the um, party that was taking it over was going to be able to execute that takeover. So we sold out, having held it for a long time, we still like exposure to that area But on an individual basis, it seemed like the risks were increasing and the potential for further returns were diminished. Turning to, let's say, the other side of the coin, what do you think are the main risks to Asian equity income shares at the moment? The main risks that I see for Asia income shares, I suppose, are twofold. On a broader picture basis, it comes down to geopolitics and We have issues with North Korea that everyone's well aware of. They seem to be improving at the moment, 
but you have a, a relatively inexperienced young leader there, and he is up against a relatively old, inexperienced leader <laughs> in America. And so there might be some policy Friction. error there, which <laughs> yeah. could easily... Well, that okay. would be negative globally, but very much for Asia. Yeah. And within Asia, though, if you're looking at it purely at a smaller level, so more within the region itself, last year, Asia Income Funds had a difficult year because... An enormous amount of performance for the region came from a limited number of companies and they tended to be non-dividend-paying internet-related companies. Um, so Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent, they provided almost half of the total return for the Chinese-listed companies. And you will get periods like that. We think that they're too expensive, so they don't... Tencent pays a yield. It's, I think, 0.14% yield, so minimal and not one that we would take on to our portfolio, and the others don't pay dividends at all. So if you had a repeat of that, then obviously Asia income funds would struggle to catch up or keep up with the total return of the region, which is ultimately what we're aiming for with the fund. Other than these um, internet shares you mentioned, are there any areas or sectors that you're avoiding? We tend not to like areas where you have companies that are limping along, hoping to survive, and they will tend to perform very well when they lurch from bankruptcy into profitability. And so some of the deeply cyclical Chinese basic industries or steel manufacturers are one that we're going to struggle to really embrace within the portfolio. Or some of the over-leveraged Australian commodity plays would have been another example of that. Apart from that, everything is open as long as, again, they do pay a dividend and we see some aspect of growth within their earnings streams. Thank you, Mark. A really interesting insight into the potential of Asian equity income. Thank you very much. A source of income closer to home is Lowland Investment Company, which we count among our IC Top 100 funds. Emma, you met the managers of this investment trust recently. What sort of income has it been paying out? The amount of income the trust has been paying has been good, and it's also seen strong dividend growth. For example, in the last financial year, it grew dividends by almost 9%. And over the past five years, it's grown dividends at a compound rate of 10%. OK, so is it a high yielder? Actually, despite the good dividend growth, its yield is not particularly high. It's currently yielding about 3.2%, which is less than the 3.9% the FTSE All Share is paying. Not a bad yield, but as you said, um, below the benchmark. So are the funds managers doing anything about this? The managers of this trust, James Henderson and Laura Fole, are content with the yield as it is. That's because they prefer to focus more on dividend growth rather than chasing a high yield. And that often means that they look at companies which are on lower ratings, but which they believe could be set for turnaround. For example, they try to avoid areas and companies which they think could be value traps, which they say an example is Marks & Spencer's, which is yielding about 6%. And they think that actually, of all that looks attractive on the surface, it could be a value trap. So other than trying to avoid value traps, how else do we go about building Lowland Investment Company's portfolio? Well, they describe themselves as mildly contrarian, and that means that they tend to invest in companies facing difficult situations which are a bit unloved by the market, but where they believe there is that potential for a recovery. OK, and has this approach been successful? Yes, it has. The trust's net asset value and share price both outperform the FTSE All Share, both of the short and long term. And one example of a company which was unloved, which they bought into a few years ago, was Scapper, a global manufacturer of adhesive tape. 
they bought the company when its shares had fallen to 20p. Um, and that was due to concerns over low profit margins and the fact that it was embroiled in some legal action at the time. But last year, they sold out of a position when the shares had risen to around £4. That's um, quite a success story. But are there any times when this contrarian approach hasn't worked? Yes, there are. The most recent example is that the trust held services company Carillion, which, as we all know, went into liquidation earlier this year. The stock accounted for less than 1% of the trust portfolio, but it was still the single largest attractor of performance last year. OK, so how are we dealing with this situation? Well, they obviously accept that they made a mistake with Carillion, but they say that it's important not to overreact and tar all companies with the same brush, particularly outsourcers. So in fact, they've added another outsourcer to their portfolio, Babcock, and they believe that this company is in a much stronger position than other outsourcers, as it's often the only contender for the contracts that it is bidding for an interesting approach to selecting investments and also see Emma's interview with Lowland Investment Company's managers in this week's magazine and on the website to see which of the shares they have recently added to the trust. If growth is more your thing than income, then you might be interested in a new fund that is scheduled to launch in the next couple of months, as this is going to look beyond the usual sources to get it. Emma, can you tell us a bit more? Yes, um, the funding question is Bailey Gifford US Growth Trust and it's a new investment trust which is planning an IPO, initial public offering, in March. It will invest in listed and unlisted American companies with the aim of achieving long-term capital growth and it will be run by some of the managers of Bailey Gifford's open-ended American fund. Why is it going to invest in unlisted companies? Well, the managers are saying that they're finding that many US companies are choosing to stay in private hands for longer rather than listing on public markets. And Bailey Gifford American Fund only invests in publicly listed companies. So in order to give them access to that growing pool of unlisted companies, you know, they want to set up this investment trust. And how much of uh, the trust's assets will be invested in unlisted companies? Initially, um, the plan is for the trust to invest mostly in just listed companies. But over time, it will have the ability to have almost half of its portfolio in unlisted companies. Okay, so almost like a private equity fund. On that note, that's obviously quite a bit different to investing in listed companies. So I think important question, um, who exactly are the trust managers and what experience do they have of investing in unlisted companies? Sure, the lead manager of the new trust will be Gary Robinson, and Helen Zhong and Andre Kislev will be its deputy managers. And Mr Robertson and Ms Zhong currently manage Bailey Gifford American Fund, um, as I mentioned, alongside Tom Slater, who is a co-manager of Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. And that trust has quite a bit of exposure to unlisted companies. So the managers do have some awareness and experience in this area. So when is Bailey Gifford US Growth Trust coming to market and how much does it hope to raise? It's hoping to raise £250 million and the plan is to come to the market by March. You've obviously been speaking to people in the investment industry. What are their thoughts? Do they think that this investment trust will be able to get £250 million in its IPO or, or how much? To be honest, we'll have to wait and see because some of the people I spoke to said that previous attempts to launch a US equity trust have been quite difficult. For example, FNC tried to launch one a few years ago 
um, that had to be cancelled due to lack of demand. And more recently, in 2015, Mario Gabelli, who is a highly regarded US value manager, was able to launch a, a trust, the Gabelli Value Plus Trust, but it's remained quite small, suggesting that there's limited appetite from investors. So we'll have to see really whether or not this trust can actually raise the amount that it's aiming for. But it would be fair to say this is obviously a bit different. It's not just a US equities fund. Yeah, that's it's, right. It's, in effect, almost a, a private equity fund, like you say. be interesting to see if it succeeds. Thank you, Emma. That's all we've got time for today, but you can read more on Lowland Investment Company and Bailey Gifford US Growth Trust in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.